0: Welcome to City Life. It's the first weekend, if you look at the church calendar, the liturgical calendar, that we are in the Lent season. And uh, as we look forward to Easter, as we look forward to celebrating Easter weeks from now, it's just a season of preparation, preparing our hearts for celebrating Christ's death, but also Christ's resurrection. But I know for some of us, probably not the ones here, but for the many people live streaming tonight, like like Lent season, you're like, what? I don't even know what day it is because uh, you've been hit with this flu bug that's going around, the sickness that's going around, and uh, I know about it. I can joke about it because I was there last week. That's why Fred was here preaching last week because I was at home with no voice, in bed, just wrecked. So uh, I would just, good to see Nat. I know you're recovered. So it, it, praise God that every one of you is here, but also we're praying for every one of you at home watching right now. If you're here, it's like the Hunger Games. You've survived. Congratulations. Hopefully we're not whittled down week by week until we have like just two survivors. But uh, we look for, we're look we praying. As a matter of fact, I joke about it. Can we pray for uh, those that are sick home with their kids? I just got a text right before service. Somebody else's kid was throwing up. So God, we just lift up. Every household that's been impacted by the flu that's going around, the sicknesses that are going around, God, we pray that you would be Lord over that home each home from marriages to finances as people have to step away from work to pregnancies, Lord God, every detail, God, I pray that you will be Lord, you will be sovereign, you will be Jehovah Jireh, the provider, God, you will be the healer, God, and that that in this season, it wouldn't feel like a wasted season for these families, it would be a season where you draw near, where your Holy Spirit is present. We know you're not just here in this place, God, you're here with each family as they are watching, as they are together, Lord God, I pray that you would bless them in this season in Jesus name amen and if you're live streaming and you're not sick get your life right but that's another sermon for another time uh but it was it was two years ago yeah like I was at home last week. this is terrible I, I would love to be there I can't imagine missing if you're not like sick as a dog but uh anyways another sermon for another time it was two years ago now uh, right after Easter, two years ago, that the movie Avengers Infinity War came out. And there was a villain, Thanos, who snapped his finger. And with one snap of his finger, half of the superheroes that we grew up loving, or maybe half of the superheroes that your children love right now, they all became ash and dust and floated away. And for, for me, I've probably said this before, it was kind of like our empire strikes back. Like when I grew up watching Star Wars and my dad would always remind me that after that came out and he said, Luke, I'm your father. And then for a year, you're like, was he lying? Is this real? Did this really just happen? It was kind of like that with that movie, The Avengers. And why am I talking about this? Why were people so jarred by half of their superheroes disappearing and becoming dust and ash? It's because superheroes are kind of like our Greek gods, right? They have fantastic abilities. And yet they're relatable, and, 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 but they're always there. So to see half of them just poof, become ash and dirt and float away is, was wild. It was jarring. But I share all that because this week, again, if you look at the church calendar, the, the liturgical calendar as the church enters Lent, there was Ash Wednesday, where many a priest and many a minister would say, remember that you are dust, and to dust you'll return. This is a universal reality that that we can't escape, right? That, That we are prone to decay, just like creation in Romans 8. We're part of that creation. And no matter how strong you are, no matter how healthy you are, praise God for the healthy people here, right? No matter how healthy you are, no matter how superhuman you seem, no matter how many CrossFit sessions you go to, right? Scientifically, learned it at William & Mary. At 28, after 28, you just start slowly decaying, praise God. But as much as... We're entertained by death. We might watch Netflix specials about serial killers or we play video games where there's death involved. When it comes to death on a personal level and what waits for us after death on a personal level, so often we don't reflect on that, meditate on that. That's why the author of Ecclesiastes says it's, better to spend time at funerals than parties because it's like psalm 90 verse 12 walked out teach us the brevity of life so that we can walk in wisdom it's like teach us this reality of ash wednesday that we're but dust and to dust we will return because there's wisdom in that truth there's wisdom in that consideration and so ash wednesday was is the way in church history that we've been able to address this reality without becoming like funeral crashers right? to 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 consider this this idea that yes, Jesus died and Jesus was resurrected, and we will all one day die, but we will all one day join him in that resurrection and so we 're not going to do our own version of Ash Wednesday tonight, sorry, bummer right but we are looking at the second city out of seven cities in this series, which is Smyrna and in that is death, in that is suffering, and in that is the reality of Easter, Christ's resurrection. So if you're at home with the flu, I hope it doesn't hit too close to home when we talk about suffering. But uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation 2. It's verses 8 through 11 that we'll be at. Whether you got your paper Bible, you got the app, there's, there's Bibles in your pews. But Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. But as you turn there, we've been in this series, again, seven, Dear Seven Cities, with the tagline, you've got mail from Jesus, because these were seven letters prophetically given from Jesus to John to be delivered to seven churches in seven cities. And we opened by looking at this reality. The first week of this series, we kind of did a prologue looking at John's vision, what Jesus said to John, and we talked about how Jesus cares about the church. When he appears to John, what does he begin talking about almost immediately? the church. And when John has a vision of of Jesus, this glorified vision of Jesus, where is Jesus? It says he's among the seven lampstands, which represent the seven churches. Scripture tells us plainly, and I've got this one here because there's seven branches on this, and there's seven churches that Jesus addresses. And, And as we are going to see, and as we saw with Ephesus, a lot of these churches are far from perfect. They're messed up, and yet Jesus is still In his church, working through the church. It's his vessel, it's his body, and it's where he's at. So if you follow Jesus, you'll follow him into the church. So two years ago, we looked, or excuse me, not two years, can't tell you what I preached on two years ago. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first letter to Ephesus. Provided for us like a general outline of Jesus in these letters to the churches because it addresses the angel of the church. We get a portrait of Christ. There's the encouragement, the correction, the action steps, the promise, and then a call to hear. And So maybe you're like, I wasn't here that week. Or maybe you're like, it was two weeks ago. I can barely remember any of it. Well, you're kind of in luck. Because the letter to Smyrna is one of the the ones in these letters that kind of drifts from that outline. So let's read and see what I'm talking about. But in Revelation 2, verse 8, this is, again, Jesus speaking to John. He says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone who hears to hear, excuse me, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word to the church some 2,000 years ago. God, we know that your word is still living, it's still active. So I pray that tonight, as we are here living and breathing, your Holy Spirit would use it, God, to bring a deeper understanding. God, to plant seeds that will bear fruit in our lives. God, and as this is a subject that we so often don't want to wrestle with or we avoid, God, I pray you would speak twice as loud tonight. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So again, every one of these letters has a unique portrait of Jesus, and this one is no different. And it starts with this portrait of Jesus, and it says he is the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. So maybe you're newer to the faith, or maybe you just need to hear this again. We don't worship a dead man, right? Jesus died, and then Jesus was resurrected. This is why we talk about Easter and the reality of Easter, not just on Easter Sunday, but all throughout the year. It's why it's such a big, massive celebration, because if the resurrection is a lie or false, then newsflash, your faith is worthless. Right. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. But if the resurrection is true, then your faith is priceless. The faith, the hope we have, the gospel, it's priceless. We worship a risen Savior, and again, in the same way that we're one day going to join him in death, we are going to join him in rising from the grave. In the same way that the picture of Jesus meant something to the church in Ephesus, right, where, where Jesus was holding the seven stars and the coins of Domitian had him amongst seven stars, this picture would have been meaningful to Smyrna as well. Because Smyrna in 600 B.C. was basically ransacked and destroyed and left desolate, left abandoned for some 300 years before it was rebuilt again. So for 300 years, this city was for all intents and purposes dead. And it's why the city became known as one that had died and come back to life again. Its symbol was the phoenix, which was this old ancient symbol for resurrection. And then here's this emerging church in Smyrna, worshiping the one who was dead, but is now alive. And this city was was more than just coming back to life. It became one of the most influential cities in Asia Minor. It was a port city. It had this proud tradition of literature. It's where Homer was born, the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And it produced myrrh, a lot of myrrh. It was like their chief export. And the Greek name for Smyrna You can hear it. Myrrh is at the heart of it. It means city of myrrh. So I've actually got some myrrh essential oil, right? They still got myrrh. Myrrh essential oil has uses. I had to look them up, right? But apparently it helps aging. Holler back, right? You Rub it on It helps wrinkles and, and that. It also helps oral health. But historically, myrrh is an embalming fluid because it kills bacteria and it kills parasites. This is what made myrrh, right? When we hear myrrh, we think of Christmas. We think of the gifts for Jesus. It's what made it an awkward gift for a baby or a toddler. Like, hey, one day you're going to die. Here's some myrrh, right? This is, it's odd. But it was prophetic, and it was prophetically filling because Jesus did come to die, right? And his death was pleasing in that it satisfied the wrath of God. But again, he didn't just die. He resurrected. And the church in Smyrna, this city of myrrh, shared in his suffering. And I think one of the, the most profound and yet potentially confusing verses about Jesus's suffering in Scripture is Hebrews 2:10, where it says, "It was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing men and sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, speaking of Jesus, perfect through suffering." So you could be like, well, what's the implication? Is the implication that Jesus was imperfect, that he had sin and he had to be purified through suffering and penance? No, it it simply means that his his obedience, his perfection was made complete. This word perfect in, in the Greek means complete. He became complete as what Hebrews talks about. He's the high priest. He's the perfect mediator. He's the lamb of God. And he was made complete and perfect sacrifice for me and for you. And so here in Smyrna, they followed the footsteps of Jesus, even in suffering and death. For example... Again, John is being addressed by Jesus. John had been involved with many of these churches. And John had discipled a man called Polycarp, raised him up, and then sent him there to minister. And Polycarp, at one point after ministering, was arrested by the Romans and Domitian, the same emperor we talked about last week, had him burned at the stake. And it's said that as they were preparing to, to burn him, he said, For 86 years I've served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You know, Smyrna followed in the footsteps of Jesus the footsteps of Jesus, the same way that Polycarp did, even in suffering and death. And following Jesus, I don't know if you've heard, it's kind of the point. And they were dedicated to it. And maybe that's why in this letter, where they have been following Christ, even in suffering, even to the point of death, that we don't get the formal commendation, we don't get the formal correction. But you know what the greatest commendation and encouragement for that church was? There was no correction. It's all encouragement. It's all Jesus saying, "Hey, keep going. Keep persevering." And at the outset of this letter to Smyrna, right when you when he begins speaking to the church, he assures them, like as we talked about tonight, that as we look to him, guess what? He sees. He cares. He says, "Look, I see. I know your suffering and your poverty." And in terms of the poverty, he says, "What?" He says, "But you're rich." Right? He's saying, look, you may be poor materially, but you are rich in Christ with salvation, the hope of heaven, and this victor's crown that he says is awaiting them. This victor's crown in heaven. And again, this would have tied to Smyrna and, and the wealth and power there because the city was famously encircled by crowns of porticoes. And they became so well-known for that. It wasn't like a wonder of the world like there was in Ephesus, but the, the crown, the wreath you would wear, like in the Olympics, that became the symbol of the city and most of their inscriptions. And so Jesus is saying, look, I give a greater crown, a crown of life. You may be poor in Smyrna's eyes, but you're rich eternally. But then what about the suffering? Can you put a positive spin on that? Right? And as I'm reading this passage, you know, whenever I preach on a passage, I read it again and again. And I'm trying to think, man, how would I have felt? Because somebody showed up to this church in Smyrna and read this letter aloud. How would I have felt receiving this prophetic word, this message from Jesus? And, man, every time I read it, these three words would hit where Jesus says, look, you will suffer he says, Look, I've seen your suffering. They've been suffering. I'm, I'd be like, Okay, now are you going to deliver us? Now is the, it going to be the end of the suffering? But he, he, he continues, he says, You will suffer. Like that sounds more like a threat from Taken, right? From Liam Neeson. Or like Thanos in The Avengers, like, You will suffer, than a promise from God, right? When he's trying to encourage us. We talked two weeks ago about how, when it comes to application for us, when we read these letters as a church, if the shoe fits, tie the laces, right? If the shoe fits, wear it. But with this, it's like, I'm good. <laughs> Speak for yourself. All right, we don't like to think about this reality. But Jesus, I believe, is giving the church a gift, not just the church in Smyrna, but every church that reads this and heeds his word to hear it. Because what he's doing is he's preparing us with expectation. He's arming us with expectation. Again, it was three years ago that we adopted Raj, but when you parent a child from an adopted or an unstable background, it means you had to account for fear or inappropriate reactions when there's an uncertain situation or a new or challenging situation. And one way you can help a child to, to set them up to succeed is to provide a script, like let them know what they're walking into, How they can handle themselves, basically give them some expectation and it removes the fear of the unknown. In this letter to the church in Smyrna, his chief advice for the church is in verse 10 where he says, Don't be afraid. So, what does he do? He, in effect, walks out some of parenting 101 that you can save yourself a headache by setting expectations ahead of time. We got a lot of parents, right, in city life. You walk into food line and you're like are we getting candy no what happens if you throw a fit when we don't get candy we leave does it work maybe right (laughs) sometimes parenting is not an exact science but it is said right an ounce of preparation can save a pound of headache and we God's children would sometimes do well to heed these words that hey you, you will suffer the extent varies, right? Few of us will experience the suffering and persecution like the church in Smyrna or the persecuted church. And, and some suffering for some people is visible, right? But for others, it's hidden. For some people, the, the pain is emotional. For some, of the pain is physical. But these three words frame reality this side of heaven. Right? It's a reality we avoid, but it's still the reality that we walk in. And I believe that the, the fact we avoid this so often is why we so often walk in suffering poorly because we, we act as if it's coming as a surprise. And we can be such crummy comforter for others, right? When, when one of the most precious I believe some of the most precious callings of the church is when we can come alongside each other in suffering, when we can come alongside each other in loss and really be the body of Christ in those situations. But I, again, as I'm reading this passage this week, I'm thinking if this wasn't Jesus, but if this was some of Jesus's followers writing this church that's in pain and suffering, thinking of like some of the, the letters they would have got. They probably would have got the one from the cheerleader, right, who's always trying to keep things positive, right? Always grin and bear it, right? There's the accuser who assumes that suffering must be a result of stepping out of God's will, like Job's friends in the Old Testament. There's the divine masochist who all but tells you to rejoice over the fact that you're suffering, the very existence of the pain. And then there's the super Christian who would tell you that, look, God wants to heal, God wants to deliver, you just need the requisite amount of faith. And none of those are wrong. Right? They're all based on truth in Scripture, but so often rather than consoling or comforting, they end up being confusing. Sometimes we need to simply hurt with those who hurt, mourn with those who mourn, suffer with those who suffer, rather than always trying to find the quick truth or, or quickly usher the, the pain away. And I'm convinced it's because we so often forget that the Bible and Jesus himself gives us this expectation that you, you'll see trouble in this world. And when we don't uh, heed or hear this, this expectation he gives us, that's how the enemy can so often sow seeds of doubt, confusion, discouragement, disconsolation in the midst of suffering. But like all the letters to the church, Jesus says at the end of this, hey, if you have ears to hear, hear what I'm saying. We need to hear this letter. Because so often in American Christianity and in the American church, we can simply subscribe to different versions of the prosperity gospel, where the American dream is stamped on Bible verses. But of all Jesus's promises, the one we definitely name and claim the least is the one he says to his disciples in John 16. He says in John 16, you will have trouble. He says, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. This is basically you will suffer, but just packaged a little differently. And yet the promise Uh, uh, of trouble in John 16 comes with two other powerful promises. Just in the second half of that chapter, in this conversation Jesus is having, he promises two other things, peace and joy. And not just any joy, abundant joy. And not by avoiding trouble, right? But in the midst of it, Like, like joy is not the fruit of not suffering. Joy is not the fruit of perfect circumstances. Joy is a fruit of the spirit that happens in any circumstance, and I'm convinced that we can be so robbed of peace and joy when we step into trouble or when we step into hard seasons because we forget that it's to be expected. We think, man, it shouldn't be here. right? I, I've done something wrong or God's doing something wrong. And we, we're obsessed with the why. It's because we're missing the mark. God is off the job. Or, again, we lack the requisite faith to be delivered from this trouble. But we've forgotten. Trouble is the norm, this side of eternity. Yes, God delivers. Yes, God redeems. Yes, God heals. But you will have trouble. Here in this letter to Smyrna, we get four expectations. Right, We're armed with four. He says, the devil will test you. He says, you will suffer. But then he says, I will give you the crown of life. And he says, you will not be harmed by the second death. Speaking of the resurrection and heaven to come. Right, There's a healthy expectation in life. Look, The enemy is active. You will have trouble, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus arms us with healthy expectations so that when trouble comes, because it will come, we don't have to respond in fear, we can respond in faith. But the second thing we see in this passage is, again, we are perfected through suffering. Countless biblical authors tie suffering and trials to growth like Hebrews did, that in the hands of a sovereign God, our hard times aren't wasted. Yeah, they may come because we live in a fallen world where people have free will, but God uses it. And I don't think it's coincidence that here in Revelation, here in Revelation, that the only churches commended by Jesus with zero correction are the two churches where if you look at it, they were the ones suffering the most, Smyrna and Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, but a church in Philadelphia. It's almost like the words of Scripture that we'll look at in Romans 5 and in James 1, that they're not some exaggeration. That, that, yes, seasons of hardship and suffering, they can grow us. They can develop us. They can make us look more like Christ. It's not just some kind of religious masochism or escape from reality. It, It is reality. There was a poll a couple decades ago. I had to go back to the book because it sounds ridiculous. There was a poll a couple decades ago of elderly churchgoers in Britain And asked the question, what was the happiest period of your life? I think it was the happiest, was the adjective they used. And over half answered the Blitz. Now, if you're familiar with history, in 1940, that was a period when Germany bombed London for 57 consecutive nights. So that answer, like that was your happiest season, (laughs) sounds like insanity. But when they asked for an explanation, The explanations were that they learned to rally as a people, they learned courage, they learned sharing, they learned how to actively hope. Would they have asked for that suffering? Not in a million years, yet it was the season in their life that they pointed back to as one of the most significant in their entire life. Again, that's a wild survey. John Ortberg did a similar one, but a a, a broader scope of thousands of people not too long ago where he was asking about like your spiritual growth and development and and the overwhelming response for the season when people experienced the most growth and the most fruit in their life was seasons of suffering. So here in Smyrna is a church that had endured seasons of suffering and had grown to a, a body of believers that was essentially above reproach. Where Jesus was basically just encouraging them to endure. There's no correction given, only encouragement. Could it be that this was because of the suffering they had been through? Now, the application that I want us to go home with is not we should become divine masochists. (laughs) We should seek out suffering and be gluttons for punishment. James 1, probably the, the most famous passage in Scripture about trials and suffering. It doesn't say rejoice that suffering comes. It says rejoice when suffering comes. Because, again, we're given this expectation. Trouble's going to come. Trials are going to come. And because of that expectation, we don't have to respond in fear. We can respond in faith. And as it says in James 1, that when it comes, we can count that season even as an opportunity for joy. Because, again, joy is not the fruit of never having trouble. Joy is not the fruit of not suffering. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit in every season. That's why Romans 5.3 can basically echo James 1 when it says, We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop. And then it goes on this list of, of the character of Christ that it develops in us. We develop from trials. We can grow in seasons of pain. We can build character, endurance, and strength. But growth and suffering, it's not automatic. Yeah, God won't waste it, but sometimes we will. Sometimes we can waste that potential for growth. And how can we grow? One step tonight. It's not a cure-all. It's not the only answer is is to reframe your questions. Questions are powerful. The right questions will lead to the right answers, the right applications. The wrong questions will just lead you down a a, a wrong path. And we have to replace the itch we have. My impulse, our impulse is human's. Right, when we suffer, the first question we ask is why? Why? If we can reframe that to, to what end? Right, what's the outcome? That can make a world of a difference. Because why is asking for the reason. Whereas to what end looks forward at our response. And response is one area in life we have some semblance of control over. Reason is often God's domain. Reason we may not know this side of heaven. But we always can control our response. Response is our assignment in scripture, again and again, not the cause. So replace why with to what end, and then secondly, I know my first impulse not only is to ask why, but when I get on my knees and pray, my first prayer is comfort, right? God says in 2 Corinthians 1 that you are the God of all comfort. I'd like some of that, right? And that's a good prayer. Jesus prayed in the garden, if it's possible, remove this cup of suffering. This is a proper prayer in suffering, to pray for comfort. God is the God of all comfort, again, as Paul calls him. But a less prayed prayer that I believe can be even more powerful than comfort me is conform me. Conform me into the image of your son. Romans 8 says we were created to be conformed into his image, his likeness, his righteousness. The pain may not always be removed, but scripture encourages us that it can be used by God to conform us into the image of his son. Again, who was perfected through suffering, as it says in Hebrews. And in Romans 8, 17, 18, it assures us, if indeed we share in his sufferings, we also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What's Paul talking about in Romans 8? He's talking about the third thing we see in, in this letter to Smyrna that we are... After we are prepared with expectations, after we are perfected through suffering, eventually in death we are promoted in resurrection. The 19th century minister, Robert Murray McShane, put it this way. To manage a life of pain as a believer in Jesus, remember, this is all the hell you will ever bear. The promise Jesus gives the church in Smyrna speaks to this when he says, if you remain faithful even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. It's like he, he reorients expectations the same way he does in the Beatitudes. When he doubles down at the end of the Beatitudes and says, hey, you're going to be persecuted. But then he says, great is your reward. Where? Here? No, he actually says in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. Will you necessarily see a tangible physical reward here on earth? No. Matter of fact, you may even face death and persecution, but will it be worth it eternally? Yes. You know, unlike medieval kings who would throw coins to the masses or presidential candidates who will throw promises to the masses, Jesus, as God in the flesh, could make eternal promises to his followers and his audience that had eternal rewards. You know, the reality in life that takes so much faith and so much trust, but it's why it's called a faith journey, (laughs) is that everything won't always be redeemed in this life. Jesus says, hey, you'll have trouble, but take heart. He doesn't say because I've overcome that that trouble. No, he's overcome the world. And I don't want to project too much on this verse, but when I read that, I come to this realization that, that I may not see the reason this side of eternity for suffering or chronic pain, but I'll graduate to the redemption, the full redemption, when I get a taste of that resurrection, when I get a taste of how... Jesus graduated from this world that he's overcome, and we're all going to have that as well. We're all going to die, but we're all going to rise. But delayed gratification, it's not Roger's strength. It's not my strength. It's not our culture's strength. We're not good with delayed gratification. And in our culture, in our American Western culture, we, we can read these passages about facing death for our faith. Just kind of skim them because it seems so far from our world and our reality. Most of us in our life, we're not going to face death for our faith. We're not going to be persecuted to the point of death or face torture for our faith. But it's, it is worth reflecting on this reality. Again, it's right here in Scripture where, where, where Jesus is saying, "He who has ears to hear, listen to what I'm saying. Consider what I'm saying. But again, it's so easy to just skim that, because when am I going to face death for my faith? But there are people around the world that daily face persecution and, and, and such for their faith. Matter of fact, there's a documentary. It's called "Sheep Among Wolves," and uh, it's about the persecuted church in the Middle East. There's actually two of them on YouTube. One of them's more like, I think, an hour just talking about what that church is going through, and the second one's specifically about the role of women in this revival in the Middle East, but but I want to show a clip because, again, it's important for us to consider the questions that arise when you're actually facing the reality that the church in Smyrna was facing. So I want to show a clip. And uh, the, this is the persecuted church. Faces blurred out voice is lowered so don't everybody look at greg like fix the sound bro like no (laughs) sounds like you know darth vader the the voice is lowered but i just want to show that they're interviewing one of the members of this church that literally faces death for their faith right walking the reality of smyrna but across the water in the middle the only way i can experience that moment and not crack and not bow like daniel didn't bow, and his friends didn't bow to the statue, is to think about the age to come. If I think about that at that moment, then what's one day day of death? What's 10 days of torture? What's 10 years in jail? What's 40 years in, in solitary confinement? What's all that compared to eternity? Lord, you did everything required to save us and bring us into your presence so to know you and behold you is our heart's desire. There is nothing higher, nothing greater to acquire. Holy, holy, holy is the song of the choir. Mm. So those are some of the questions that the church in Smyrna was probably considering. Those are the questions we rarely ask ourselves, right, as American Christians in our culture. We're, we have freedom of religion. We have freedom to come here and worship. We're not worried about somebody busting through those doors. And that and the heart of the answer for, for this man who's being interviewed about his faith in this region is to think about the age to come. Or as he said, what's all that compared to eternity? The answer for them and the answer for the church in Smyrna as Jesus is encouraging him is the reality of the resurrection. For, for Smyrna, for those people in the Middle East, that, that the reality that Jesus didn't just die but he rose and we're all going to taste that, that's what could fuel their faith, their trust, and their endurance in that season. But another question we should consider as we consider the reality that the church in Smyrna lived with is is what's our price? What's my price? There's another person being interviewed, and he says, One of the biggest things that working with the persecuted church has made me think about is what's my price? Where or what or with who is my price? Is money my price? Is the ones that I love my price? Is my friends my price? Is the ministry at large my price? what's your price? You know, that, that that video, it talks about how, like, church membership in this region is, is answering the questions, okay, so if, if, if somebody breaks in and they're torturing us, what do we say and what do we not say? What do we reveal? What do we not reveal? Like, imagine that being a part of Discover City Life. And yet, this question, is what he's asking. What, what is my price? Because again, if It's all rooted in the resurrection. If the resurrection is false, this is all worthless. But if the resurrection is true, if Jesus rose from the grave, then it's priceless. There is no price. And it's a relevant question for each one of us tonight because when you look at the parable of the four soils, it's not just hardship, persecution, enduring hard times that can choke out the seed of faith in people. One of the other soils is just death by distraction. Just being derailed by busyness. That's what we so often are derailed by here. Busyness can buy our faith. That's the price. It can derail our walk as we chase acclaim, promotion, wealth. So the question we should ask tonight is, what's our price and what is all those things? As this man asked in that video, what is fill in the blank compared to eternity? All right, what's my price. And if I could just have Felicia come up, she's going to lead us in a song as we close. But in a society like ours that avoids thinking about death and is consumed with the here and now, we should echo those words of, of, of Ash Wednesday that were spoken from dust you came and to dust you'll return. It's actually, you know, kind of sounds like an insult. You're, you're dust. You're a dirt bag. No, what it's saying is it's not an insult. It's an invitation. Jesus meets us in the dirt. Jesus doesn't expect us to climb a ladder of achievement or to climb a ladder of perfection before he meets us. He meets us at the foot of the cross. You know, what's your your price? You look at that question. If you totally change the context, you could also read that as what's your value? What is your value as an individual? What is your worth? as an individual. And in life, you can try to find that in a hundred different things. But value and worth and dignity is found in what somebody will pay for that item. And God sent his son to die on a cross for you by name. Your worth, your value is clearly immense in God's eyes. And he didn't just die. The reality of what was written to the church in Smyrna is the reality we walk in tonight, that he was dead, but he's now alive. And he wants living and active relationship with each one of us. So tonight, if we could all stand, we're going to worship in a second. Maybe you don't have a relationship with God at all. Or maybe you look at your relationship, it's all but atrophied and dormant. Then, man, we would love to pray with you tonight. Because not only did Jesus die and resurrect and he's alive and we don't worship a dead man, but he doesn't want a dead relationship with each one of us. He wants a, a, a relationships that marked by life and the life that comes through the Holy Spirit. But secondly, and maybe the one that, that we can relate to tonight, is, is Jesus says to the church in hey, I know you're suffering. I know what you're going through. I know what you're walking through. I know what you're struggling with. And the implication in this letter is not only does he know, but he cares. He encourages them. He tells them to not be afraid. And God, I pray that in this place, God, no matter what we're going through tonight, no matter what our suffering may be, it may be physical, it may be emotional, it may be visible, it may be hidden. It may seem downright trifling compared to the the depth of of suffering in Smyrna, Lord God. But we thank you that no matter what it is, you care, that you love us. And God, that in relationship with us as any good father, you want to be there for us and help us in those seasons. God, it's in those ways that we're able to grow and look more like Christ. So if you need prayer for anything, anything you're walking through, anything you're enduring, the Hilters would love to pray for you right here. I'd love to pray for you. But Felicia's going to lead us in worship tonight as we close and worship Jesus Christ because of the reality of Easter. That means so much, not just on Easter, but tonight. That Jesus didn't just die, but he rose. And yeah, we're dirt. We're going to return to dirt. But you know what? We're also going to rise. And we're going to stand in heaven and praise. We're going to worship. So let's practice right now. Praise him in this place.